Welcome to a conversation about the minister and money. This is another installment in uh, the Authenticity Series that is sponsored by the Southeastern Center for Pastoral Leadership and Preaching. And the series is just about an, uh, an honest look at the life of a pastor as well as staff members. Uh, we use uh, conversations like this uh, to resource uh, ministers of the gospel as well as the churches that they uh, they serve in. And so we're excited tonight to add to uh, really a, a repertoire of, of, of great resources that are already available on the center website through Southeastern's website. We've had conversations about death and dying, about marriage and uh, divorce, weddings, funerals, the Lord's Supper, conflict, time management, uh, and, and a whole host of other things that you can access uh, along with this conversation. Uh, and, and we hope that you'll do that and take advantage of that. We're very grateful for you uh, joining us, uh, uh, both by recording tonight as well as those of you that are here uh, in the live audience. And so I want us to jump into this. I, uh, my name is Jim Shaddix, by the way. I have the privilege of serving as uh, the Associate Director of uh, Southeastern Center for Pastoral Leadership and Preaching. Uh, but tonight is going to be about learning from some brothers uh, who bring a great amount of expertise and wisdom to this subject of the minister and money. So I want to I introduce you to these guys. Uh, my far left down here is Ryan Hutchinson. Ryan uh, serves as Vice President of Operations uh, here at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, this brother has served our faith family uh, faithfully for about 19 years now. Uh, and brings a wealth of experience and understanding to this subject, teaches courses on it, which we're very, very uh, grateful for. And to my immediate left, Art Rayner is the Vice President for Institutional Advancement, uh, has an MBA, uh, and also working on a doctorate in business administration, and uh, knows how to speak into this issue uh, as well. But guys, you guys aren't here because you're vice presidents of a seminary. You're here because you're churchmen uh, and you have served the local church. You know, Ryan, you're serving as an elder at your church and uh, helping out with administration. You have interacted with pastors and staff members uh, on this issue of, of money, a whole lot, art. Uh, serving as a, as a pastor of administration uh, at a church in Florida. Uh, you guys have lived this, and you are ministers of the gospel, and so uh, we're excited tonight uh, to be able to just uh, hear uh, from your experience and from your wisdom in this area. Um, all right, we're, we're, we're ministers, we're pastors, we're, we're staff members. Do we really need to have this conversation? I mean, is this, is this really something that is important? What is so important about us talking about money and, and the church? Ryan? Yeah, Jim, we're, Art and I are both excited to be a part of this because this is an area that both of our, uh, just from an interest standpoint and a love for the local church, uh, have an intense interest in. And one of the reasons we have an interest is because uh, typically ministers will find themselves disengaged from the topic of money. And it either affects their leadership in the local church or even affects them to the point of legally of breaking laws. Uh, when it comes to how it is that things of their compensation should be handled and making decisions on other kinds of things re regarding staff pay and how staff compensation and benefits are handled. And so therefore, it's, uh, it, it is an important topic where a minister doesn't necessarily have to become an expert on it, 
but if they are to walk with integrity before God and therefore lead their church well, it's something that they do have to be at least versed in knowing where the resources are and knowing who it is that they can rely on uh, to get the right information. Art, what would you add to that? Well, exactly um, what Ryan said, but I, w- I would add to to the, the issue of money. It's, it's much larger than than just the, the minister. But money is an issue that affects all of us. And it's actually a bigger issue than just money. In fact, money is couched under the idea of, of stewardship. And we know that this is, a, this is a Bible issue. You go back to Matthew 25, and you, you read about the parable of, of the talents, how the master gave five talents to one, two to another, one to, to another. The, the, the story, the parable, is very telling. First of all, it, it tells us that, one, God owns everything. Right? God, God owns everything. We see the master imparting resources to the, to, to, to the slaves, to, to the manager. Second, it, it tells us that we are temporary managers of what God has, has given us. We have, a, we have a brief window of time to manage all these resources. When I say resources, it's, once again, it's larger than money. Um, it could be our house. It could be your car. It could be anything that God has given you. We are tasked with stewarding all the resources well. And then finally, we know in the, we're, we're, t- we're temporary managers of these resources. At the end of the parable, we see the master coming back and holding the managers, holding the, the slaves accountable for how they invested their resources. Now, what we know is that he's referring to um, how we are to invest our resources that he has given us for kingdom purposes, for kingdom inv- advancement. So we're we're just managers. We, we have nothing. We, we came to the earth with nothing. We live um, on, on this earth owning nothing because it's all God's, and we're going to leave with nothing. But we are going to be held responsible for what we've been um, given by, by God for this, for this brief, brief period of time. And I think it's also important, as we talk about this conversation of the minister and, and, and money, to define what we mean by, by, by minister, because we may um, define it in one way. The IRS, I would say, defines it in a, in a completely, uh, just a different way, a very technical way. And so the way that we define, uh, the way the IRS defines a minister, which pertains to, to this particular conversation, is one, you've been ordained, licensed, or, or commissioned. Two, you administer the ordinances, so baptism, the Lord's Supper. Three, you have some type of responsibility in, in, in a local church. Um, four, you conduct worship. And then five, the people in your church see you as a religious leader. So it's those five key points that the IRS says, if you meet the majority of, of these five points, if, if you, you hit on the, these five points, at least the majority of them, then you are technically considered a, a minister. And so I think that helps clarify the conversation that we're having today. So there's, there, there's an issue here of, uh, of not only looking, and you started us off, you know, talking about, you know, the, the parable of the, good, the steward. It's the issue of not only looking when we're thinking about the minister and money um, of a biblical issue and the spiritual guys given, but we have to, we've got to give consideration to the government as well in this whole issue. Yeah. I was just going to add to that, you know, our reference about the fact that we can't, uh, that we didn't bring anything in this world and take it, and that's actually Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 
actually makes that very statement in verse in, in regards to this whole topic of money. He says in First Timothy six, six through ten, that with godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll become content. But those who desire to be rich, and that could be pastors defined from an IRS standpoint, that could be priesthood, you know, a, pre, a kingdom of priests, us all as believers, all kind of fall into this category. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, and this is a, a verse we typically get wrong. Most people say, for money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's actually the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, including pastors. Sure. You know, there, and that's a, that's a great uh, bridge, Ryan, just to help us think about the fact that, you know, in, in the public eye today, when we, we look at controversy and scandal in churches among pastors there are really there are really two big issues one is inappropriate relationships and the other one is this issue of of money management anything you would add to that is, well why is that why why is that i mean we obviously in the text that you read just a moment ago we, we were given some answers to that but why is this such a huge issue that gets us in trouble uh, yeah, I think that as you look at uh, what John says in First John and kind of how he summarizes all sins that we face, uh, that really it's uh, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And, and so much of that is tied up into uh, those two different kinds of things where those kind of desires are there. Because uh, in a sense, we are called uh, to be faithful unto what uh, God, on how God wants us to walk. Uh, but our flesh is constantly kind of pulling us away and the desires that are there and according to what it is that the world wants to chase after. And the world wants to chase after generally two things, sex and money. Uh, money is literally tied to everything and in many times is even tied to the sexual morality issues that go on in, in uh, our world today. And so that draw is there even for redeemed people because of that battle that's still going on between uh, the spirit and the flesh in their own lives. And, uh, and so really that just kind of serves as a base for almost everything. Now there's, of course, other things that pastors get themselves in trouble with, but the ones that are the, the major obstacles that in, in many ways become the, if you might want to say, ministry enders, end up being that area of inappropriate relationships or failure to handle money properly. And another reason why it gets so many ministers in trouble is because the complexity attached to to money. I'd say Ryan and I, we actually have somewhat of an unfair advantage. Um, our educational background has um, taught us much about about money, but that's not always the case for for ministers or for the I'd say the majority of of, of the American po- population. Most are not as well educated in the realm of money, so there's that the lack of financial acumen. Um, lends itself to making sometimes poor financial decisions. Let me uh, sh- shift this from the, min- the, the, the minister, the pastor's standpoint to the church's standpoint. We started off talking about why this is important for us as ministry leaders you know, to think about this issue. What about from the church's standpoint, the congregation's standpoint? Why is it important for the church to think about the pastors, the pastor with regard to the issue of money or the staff member with regard to the issue of money? This is one of the things just in our own Baptist tradition why I think that 
uh, our understanding of a congregational rule environment uh, is helpful because therefore it calls for the congregation to actually be engaged in the life of the church and that includes actively being involved in decisions as to how it is that they take care of those that shepherd them. Uh, one of those theories is not just simply uh, protection, although protection is one, that laws are being followed and uh, things are being done above board, uh, even ethically, if, even if it's not an issue of necessarily a law being broken, but just ethics that are applied. But the other is it's important for the church because they are to take care of those that are shepherding. It's uh, in First Timothy 5, 17 through 18, there again, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says that you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, this is a responsibility of the congregation to see that their pastors are taken care of uh, because this, their labor is providing shepherding for the people. Um, there are bivocational pastors out there, and that's a worthy thing to do, especially in areas where they can't support that. But in many cases, there's churches that have the ability to support a pastor full-time. Uh, and that's one of the things that they do is just looking after those that are laboring and ruling well in those environments. If you don't mind me sharing a personal story related to that, when I was, uh, when I was young, my, my dad was a, was, was a pastor at a church in, in South Florida. I'm not going to name the church, nor am I going to name the, the people in, involved. But um, the, the pay was very meager. Uh, we lived in a parsonage, and the, the, the pay that they had offered or the salary that they had offered was, was very limited. And even as a, as a young child, and this is I was first in, in second grade, I still vividly remember us going to our own uh, church's food pantry to take food out so that we could have something to eat for dinner that night. And I, I, I tell you to say, say this, that did affect the, the ministry that, that he was able, able to do. I've had plenty of conversations with him since then. And now as, a, as an adult, I understand what was going on a lot more than I did then. Um, but it, does, it really affects the ability for the minister to do what he has been called to do for, for that church. Let, let, let me lean into that uh, just a little bit. Uh, there's, a, there's obviously a real tension here. You know, you have statements, you know, like you just read, Ryan, personal stories, testimonies. We, we all know of, of people, if it hasn't happened to us personally, that this kind of thing has happened. So, so you have passages like you read a moment ago that really are they're addressing the church. You know, they're, they're addressing the church to say, you do this. Then you have the pastor, the, the ministry leader, you know, over here that knows that verse is in the Bible. Um, who, who who's responsible for pressing that issue? You know, does does do, do I as a, a pastor or a, you know a ministry leader as a dad, you know, do I press that issue with the church or am I do I leave it completely up to the church to take initiative on that? Um, how, how do you how do you you counsel pastors in in that? Yeah, I think for a lot of pastors, it needs to start at the search committee time. That's where that conversation needs to take place. And if it doesn't take place there, there can't be necessarily a good foundation to have that conversation going forward. Uh, because there's always a sense of uh, either you're going to come off sounding like you're greedy or you're uh, 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 
questioning their provision or those kinds of things. But there still e even is a way that in a sense of humility that you can bring this up. This is the beauty of, of having the text of Scripture, is that this isn't, uh, if I'm the pastor of a local church, Ryan Hutchinson sitting up and saying, you need to pay me. I'm telling you you need to pay me. This is where we can humbly use God's Word and say, look, uh, we in our polity have set up the congregation to be those that have the final say that's here. But they are submitting themselves to God's word. And so, therefore, it is helpful for this church to say, are we meeting this particular standard that's there? You can also use other things in those situations where uh, I know uh, sometimes churches find it helpful to bring in somebody from the outside at certain times, not just on pay issues, but on other financial giving topics to kind of challenge the church in that area. And so that's a practical thing that somebody can do, not necessarily get up and beat them with a, a club, uh, but have that opportunity to be able to have that. And, it, and at the same time, we're always balancing, uh, again, Paul's mindset in Philippians 4, uh, that we are content in every situation, whether we find ourselves in great abundance or we find ourselves in great need, we're still at a place of contentment regardless. Uh, so it's not always when you find yourself in that money situation, a sign that you're supposed to go someplace else. Because sometimes that could be exactly where it is that God wants you and that there's a, a, a needing or a need to learn that sense of contentment in that situation and trust ultimately God's provision. And the, uh, the, the statistics that I've, that I've read, that, I, that I've seen, are, are, are very real in, in the way that the pastors are hesitant to, to asking for um, any type of raise. Um, we, we did a survey of 100 pastors and said, do you feel adequately paid? And 80% of the respondents said no. Well, the follow-up question, of course, was, well, have you ever asked for a raise? 100% of the, the respondents, 100% of the pastors said no. And, and I, I think what Ryan hit on was, was right. There, there's a hesitation in part because we have this we have a very small portion of pastors that tend to abuse that, that privilege or tend to abuse the, the salary. And they just don't want to get lumped in with that, with that group. But the reality is the vast majority of pastors, and we can, look at, um, we can look at Fortune Magazine, Forbes, everything that it's telling us about pastors, the vast majority of pastors are not being overpaid. They're being significantly underpaid. And um, I think it's also... For, for us as a seminary to help draw attention to, to this, to help search committees understand um, what's, what's occurring in, in churches so that they can better help address it. Both of you have, have mentioned search committees, the search process, the conversations there. Let's, let's chase that down a little bit, go down the road. So here I am. I'm, I've been invited to, uh, to interview with a search committee uh, as a potential pastor or staff member. Um, at, at what point does that enter into the conversation? Do I bring that up? And at what point do I bring that up? And what does that look like? You know, I genuinely recommend that money is the last topic in the search process. Uh, and the reason why is sometimes just from our own flesh desires, we will can miss out hearing on what God wants us to do because we can't get past a dollar sign that was already put in front of us. And so uh, there are some people that want to know right at the beginning when a, uh, uh, when a job is posted, that's the first thing they want to know. What's the salary range that it's going to be in? And, and having at least a ballpark on that is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, 
But getting into the details of that with a search committee is, I think, something that really should be saved to the end uh, as you work uh, kind of through all of the issues there. So you can have a feeling of, is this where God would have me minister? Is there a connection that's been made with this, you know, with these people? Uh, and if so, you might end up in a situation where uh, they offer a certain amount, and it's not what you were hoping for, but you have, it's been made kind of clear to you through this process, you know, this is where God wants me, so we're going to figure out how it is that we live based upon the fact that we really are convinced this is where it is that God wants us to be. Uh, but I really think that's something that you save towards the end of the process. And a, and a great way to maybe temper expectations is after you've already had a few conversations with the search committee is to ask for the church's budget. There's a number of reasons why you want to look at a church budget, um, not necessarily for salary purposes, but uh, one, so you can see, of course, how much, um, how much gifts are, are coming in. How do they use their, their money? What has historically been the strategy? A, a budget reveals a strategy for, for a church. And then from there, you can start to maybe guess or estimate, here's what I should expect from, from the church. It doesn't mean it's, gonna, it's an exact science. Um, ultimately, the committee is, is responsible for that. But it may help temper your expectations. If you're wanting forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 and you ask for the, the budget, or that's what your hope, and then you ask for the budget and realize, wow, well, their budget is $75,000. It's a small, smaller church. That may temper your expectations a little bit for what they're actually going to, to offer you. So I, I, I would encourage pastors to look at the budget um, first. We, we, we don't do this for the money. You know, we do this, as both of you have, have mentioned, it's the call of God. So it's not the driving force, the biggest factor, great wisdom and you know, holding it to the last. What are some other things that ought to distinguish between the way we approach this conversation and the way someone in a, in a secular field does that we wouldn't necessarily put in this category of a call to ministry leadership? What, how, how does that look different? Well, you know, the interest, one of the interesting things, especially when you're dealing with a, a senior pastor kind of situation, is that you're in this weird relationship with the search committee where if they call you and you accept, you are their shepherd. You are the one that's helping to pastor and lead them. And so it's different from a typical employer situation uh, where you're knowing you're going working underneath people and you're actually answering to them from a job responsibility standpoint. So there's always this kind of fine line in the shepherding world where you are serving as a leader over them, and yes, you're accountable to them as the congregation. Um, and so it's helpful, I think, for a pastor I had a pastoral ministry professor when I was here uh, working on my MDiv uh, that he actually said that he recommended that in that search process, and I thought there's a lot of wisdom there, that while you don't obviously even violate Scripture in, as an elder and domineer the people that you're dealing with, that even in that search process that you act like their shepherd through it. You're not just this kind of... Uh, I'm the employee and you're the employer, but you already kind of have that position where you're interacting with them from a shepherding standpoint. Obviously, you're balancing things uh, with it, but that's one of the ways that I think that it's different uh, is that ultimately you're ending up not in the I'm down the chain and there's people above me. 
you're actually being hired in a sense to be above them to help kind of give them direction as to, to where it is that they're heading. So, so what you're saying is there's never an, a really appropriate point in which you should be yelling like Jerry Maguire, show me the money? Um, yeah, no, um, th- that's only in certain denominations that okay. you do that. Yeah. <laughs> would, would, sh- <laughs> would shepherding uh, involve uh, at any point uh, in that process, and I, re- I really love that, that, you know, that counsel, would, would shepherding them at that point ever involve pointing them to resources that might help them? And if so, what, what might that look like? Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Just like you typically find that uh, ministers and pastors in a lot of situations are not as familiar with the ins and outs of ministerial compensation and other benefits, uh, that's equally true for search committees. Uh, this is not a world that they live in on a regular basis, and especially if you're in a smaller church uh, that maybe has a volunteer financial assistant who's taking care of the books, more than likely that person also has no clue about what the ins and outs are of ministerial compensation. And so one of the things that you can do, and this is actually one of a helpful way to get at kind of what's an appropriate number, uh, Guidestone, which is a great resource for, for pastors, even outside of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, they have a free uh, PDF, and we've actually, in one of the resources that, will be, that you'll find on the, uh, on the Pastoral Leadership Center's website, uh, a link to it that's uh, a PDF called Planning Compensation. And it's actually designed for the search committee so that it describes for them what are the categories related to ministerial compensation. And one of the neat things in there is it actually has them work through some budget categories, like how much would utilities cost and those kinds of things, because a lot of times they just have a number and they throw it out, and it's really not based in reality. And so this actually gives them a chance to say, okay, well, wait a minute, the number that we've come up with isn't going to pay their light bill. Uh, isn't going to pay their groceries and, and all the other things that are associated with it. And so it's, a, it's almost like you bring in a, a free outside consultant uh, if, they go, if they'll go through it to kind of see, you know, is this appropriate and also understand the different categories of compensation. And, and, and you meant to mention the minister's salary. It's yes. a it's a short book by a guy, guy named Art Rainer. There, there is yes, and there's a yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure it was in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah your free copies for everybody you'll here You'll be tonight, signing right? after. That's right. <laughs> that's that's great. All right, bottom bottom line question right there is this a deal breaker? You you have this conversation, and and you, you save it till the end. You know, Ryan, and you 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 approach it with humility. You help shepherd them. Uh, and and then you get to that point, and and they put the number on the table, and it's it's not what you were expecting. Is that a deal breaker for this relationship? Is it an indicator all the time of the call of God uh, in 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 the situation? Well, I wonder how a bivocational pastor would answer that. Um, so I would say no. But ministry may look a little bit different than you originally anticipated. Um, it's not that you factor out um, finances. You, you do need to consider. You do need to consider taking care of your family. But you also need to consider that maybe what the ministry that you thought, or the way God, that you thought the way God was going to use you, is, may look a little bit different than than you originally anticipated. Yeah, it's a, and, and I would say it's a maybe. Uh, the trump card is is that confirmation of the spirit in your heart that this is where you're supposed to be. 
but part of that in, in determining that leadership of the Spirit, you are looking for evidences that are around there. And if, if you're seeing, in some sense, an obstinate people when it comes to this topic and there's no flexibility or consideration about it, uh, to even investigate, you know, what it is that they're doing. It might be a sign that this isn't the group of people that you are supposed to be shepherding. So I, I, it's definitely not a definite deal breaker, but it is something I think that if they come and they say, you know, that you are hoping for $60,000 and they're saying your total package, everything is $30,000, um, you might go, okay, I must have missed something in the process somewhere. And if, if, uh, uh, again, in that role of you even starting to act like their shepherd there, if it's just not even a point that they're even willing to discuss, and uh, not from a, a greed standpoint, but just a reality standpoint, you might ask yourself a question, okay, God's called me here, so maybe bivocational is what I need to do in this situation, and I'm going to have to be up front with them. You might have been expecting a full-time pastor, but I feel called here, but I'm going to have to be bivocational unless we can come up with some other kind of a different situation. I'm I'm so glad that both of you mentioned that. I, I think it's, um, you know, it's something that I, I don't know. It, it seems to be left off the radar of many pastors in America, especially in the Western Church. We have so redefined the call of God, um, you know, to what we refer to variously as vocational ministry or full time ministry or, you know, the, those types of terms and. You know, I, 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 I think I responded to God's called ministry with that understanding, but it wasn't until years later that just in working through the New Testament, I realized I'm not sure I can prove that. And I build a case that that is, you know, a legitimate thing where we back God into a corner and say, this is the only conditions under which I will serve him. You know, the, most of the rest of the, the planet doesn't operate like that. Christians, pastors, you know, in other parts of the world, most of them are bivocational or they're tent makers. And, and um, you know, I, I know this is just a little bit of a pet peeve. I really, really appreciate you guys bringing it up. But I think it's something we've got to be more open to. And, and what you, you said, what both of you said, there is that that could be one of the options you know is that okay i uh, i i really feel strongly about this i i can't feed my family on this here's how i can do it and i'm willing to i'm willing for us to continue this conversation but i'm going to need to you know to have another job you know to be able to do this and and there's nothing wrong with that bivocational guys are not b team they're not second class citizens and so uh, thank you, thank you for 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 bringing that to our attention. Let let's talk nut nuts and bolts. Just some of the ins and outs, you know, of of this whole thing. And I'll throw out some words I've got written down here, or some some terms. Housing allowance, uh, you know, and and along with that, just the whole issue of pastoriums, our parsonages, a house, you know, provided by the church, social security, Medicare taxes, uh, whether you opt in or you you know opt out or stay in social security, uh, retirement contributions, reimbursement plans. Man, those are the, the those really get down to the tangibles, the nitty gritty. Talk to us about about those things a little bit. 
Uh, yeah, again, I would point to that resource uh, from Guidestone. I think it's a simple one and, and uh, not as a shameless plug, but Art has also <laughs> written a book on, on this that uh, will also discuss some of those topics that are there. And so There's maybe, a great section in Power in the Pulpit, by the way. That oh, book. oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. You're absolutely yeah. right. Actually, there's all kinds, of books, great great all book. kinds of books you can buy. Uh, uh, you can even pay to take my class, and I'll tell you what that is. So anyways, uh, all kinds of places. Um, so I'll start off with the housing allowance one, and then we can kind of work down the list is how it is. You know, I have many times interacted with students who were dealing with a search committee, and they said, all right, we want to call you to be your pastor. Um, here's $50,000. You divvy it up however you want to. Is it, and the person will ask, that doesn't sound right. Is that right? And I'll say, no, that's not right. <laughs> There's all kinds of issues related to that. So one thing that's unique in uh, our culture from a tax code perspective is the uh, IRS allows for uh, a certain tax advantage to pastors. Uh, and a lot of it is rooted in the, actually rooted in the concept of the parsonage is where it, it really was kind of founded. And in a, in a sense, to the day before you could go pick to live wherever you wanted to, most every church had a parsonage. And so, therefore, the pastor was required to live there. And because of the requirement to live there, there was a kind of just like the military living on base, there was a, a tax advantage to doing it because the pastor didn't get to choose where it is that he was going to live. He lived there. So as things kind of evolved over time with tax code uh, and pastors were uh, also living outside of parsonages, uh, there was uh, an expansion and understanding of what this idea of the housing allowance is. And what the housing allowance is is simply a part of your base salary uh, that is designated uh, to uh, cover your housing-related expenses. Now, here's the difficulty with that is the IRS doesn't give you a definitive list of everything that's housing-related. There's some kind of gray areas in there. There's some very clear areas uh, that are in there. But the biggest issue is determining an amount. And the IRS uh, has three tests that are out there. And these three tests are actually a little bit newer uh, because of some pastors who kind of took advantage of what the tax laws allowed for at the time. And so that led to some court cases that, and Congress passing some updated laws to clear it, uh, to clarify what housing allowance is. In housing allowance, the total amount is basically either the actual amount that you spend on those housing-related expenses, the amount that you claim. So in other words, let's say you spent $25,000, but you only claim twenty. That means that you could only claim twenty, even though there were 25. Or this one tricky one, called the fair market rental value of your house furnished. So fair market rental value is actually fairly easy to determine. Throw in furnishings, not so much. But here's the thing. The IRS says you don't get to pick which one of those it is. It says it's the lesser of, one of, of all of those three is how it is that you determine what that is. And the biggest thing that involves a church, a church body or whatever committee or elder group or whatever it might be that the church designates to be in charge of this is it's not something the pastor himself gets to decide. It's something that he can say, this is you know, how much I need or based upon what my expenses are, are going to be, what I would like to be my housing allowance. But the church or whatever body they've set aside has to approve that amount, and it can't be done retroactively. Now, it can be changed 
going forward if the pastor moves, other things like that. But that's the biggest thing is that a lot of times a pastor will get to the end of the year, it's taxes, and it's like, oh, housing allowance, and I try to figure out an amount, then is my housing allowance. That, by law, had to be decided a long, long time ago. And in, in relating to the, to the fair rent, rental value, one of the formulas that, uh, that some recommend, now once again, this is not a, a perfect science, but you take the, the value of your home. So let's say your home is worth 200000 You multiply that by, by 1%, so 2000 They say, well, that's your fair rental value, $2,000 a month or $24,000 over a, a, a year. So that's a way of calculating. And I appreciate Ryan mentioning the proactive versus um, retroactive. That can get a lot of pastors in, in, in trouble. Um, where they think they can just go back and claim housing allowance. That was something that has to be, um, a decision that has to be made in advance. And, and on parsonages, uh, since it's kind of related to this particular topic, you'll, there's not a lot of churches anymore that necessarily have parsonages. Uh, if they do, uh, they'll give the pastor a choice as to whether or not they want to live into it. There's a host of other issues with a parsonage outside of, of the compensation issues that are related to it. I've had plenty of friends who at one point in time lived in parsonages in small towns and they were a part of a kind of a committee-driven church and there was always a committee that was in charge of the parsonage of the buildings and grounds. And uh, a lot of times what would happen is is those people in this committee would just at any point in time they wanted to show up, not knock on the door, use their key to open up the door to the parsonage and walk in and check out th- how things are going at any point in time they wanted to because there was this sense of, Kind of how in a lot of churches there's this sense of ownership and this pastor is our employee, uh, not our shepherd, and therefore no respect of the space at all. Um, and so there's a host of other issues with parsonages. And so I think a pastor that's looking at a parsonage situation really should think hard and long about it if he has other options that the church is going to provide from a compensation standpoint. A little bit of a curveball here uh, related to that subject. Uh, um Let's say there's not an option, you know, and this is, you know, this is the church, this is the house the church is providing, and you really financially you don't have other options that will give you another option. How do we shepherd our wives in in, in that whole deal, you know, and just um, living in a home that we don't own, living with the the possibility, the probability of, you know, a committee member showing up and, uh, you know, really kind of, taking charge and, you know, saying what we can do and what we can't do. How, how, do, we, how do we help our, our wives and our children really deal with that? Yeah. Well, I start to say hopefully the calling is not just on the husband but also on, on, on the wife. And so this may be a part of what it looks like just to live, to, to live on the mission God has placed you, you on. Now, life is never going to be going to be perfect even if you own your own home you're going to you're going to have you're, you're going to have issues trust me i know i've i've gone through plenty of issues with uh, with our with our own house how many times have you replaced the floor in the last year twice twice <laughs> another the another story floor. for another day same another floor. story for another, another day <laughs> but even if you own your own home, you're, you're going to have you're going to have issues. Now, having somebody walk into your house with the key that's that is another another issue that I think, as the uh, shepherd of your congregation, that that may be something that you need to to guide them on, help them understand what's appropriate, what's not uh, appro- appropriate. That's a good word. Social security, opting out, 
staying in? What are the issues there? Uh, most people, there's a form called IRS Form 4361, uh, and that's the form that's there. And I, I, when I first uh, surrendered to the ministry and got ordained, one of the very first things I was counseled to do was, uh, and this was before I really had any education at all on money or ministerial compensation, I was counseled, well, what the next step that you needed to go do is go get this form, and you just need to sign it You need because it has to be done within two years of ordination, uh, and this will save you a bunch of money. Matter of fact, Dave Ramsey, and I love Dave Ramsey for a lot of reasons, but I, I desperately disagree with him on this particular topic. Uh, he actually recommends to all ministers that they, since they have the option to opt out, there's one ethical issue that's involved with this, and that's the statement that you have to sign as a pastor to say that you're going to opt out. You, it's not just saying, I think this is a better financial decision for me, because quite honestly, if you're disciplined, it is a better financial decision for you to take that same money and invest it versus what the government is going to be able to give you out of Social Security if those of us that are looking towards retirement one day will ever even see a Social Security check. But the problem is, is you have to sign a statement that says that you conscientiously object to any form of public insurance, any form, not just Social Security and Medicare, any form of public insurance. Uh, and that's a hard thing that uh, I appreciate what Guidestone counsels on. Guidestone says that it would be very, very hard for a Southern Baptist pastor to actually truthfully attest to that statement. Uh, now, the problem is, is you've got a lot of people that they signed it because that was during the day. They just said, sign it and do it, and you did it. It's done at that point in time. Unfortunately, there's not a way for you to just decide to reverse it. You kind of have to live with it. Every once in a while throughout history, uh, there has been an opportunity to opt back in, but the last one was under Bill Clinton's presidency. Uh, there was an opportunity for pastors, I think it was around 96, uh, to opt back in. And so every once in a while that happens. Uh, but it's one of those things, if, it's, if you've done it, you've done it, and you did it in ignorance, it's there, you can't go back on it. Uh, however, it is a decision that a pastor has to make as to whether or not they're going to do that, and they have to do it within two years of their ordination or licensing. And, and Ryan's significantly older than, than I am, so when he says call, call to ministry, and he's saying many years ago that was the, the, the pressure that was, that was laid upon him, um, my, my call to ministry was not that long ago. And I can attest that... Because you're, you're like 12, right? I'm, I mean... <laughs> I, I got a driver's license yesterday. And paid for two floors. That's year. right. <laughs> not too long ago, I was... I felt the, the, the call to ministry, and I received the exact same message that Ryan received from a number of pastors in, in, in my circle, opt out, opt out, opt out. I went and looked at Form 4361 and read it, read it on my own and came to my own personal conclusion there's no way that I could sign, sign it. And, and right or wrong, whether this is how you actually need, need to think of this, I, I don't know. The, the rationale that I used was, could I then go and lead others to do the same who weren't necessarily pastors? If I, if I had a religious objection to this, then why would I not go and teach others to avoid taking any type of governmental benefit as well? So that's the way that I, that I processed it. Um, once again, I'm not saying that that's the, the best way, but it led me to, to the conclusion that I could not in good conscience sign this document. And, and one clarification for a minister, especially when we're talking about bivocational pastors uh, earlier, is if uh, a pastor has either uh, 
unknowingly, you know, didn't really pay attention, just signed it, or felt that they actually did have a religious conviction and opted out of Social Security, that opt-out provision only applies to their ministerial income. So if they're bivocational uh, and they uh, are working uh, as an insurance agent or something like that or car salesman or computer programmer or whatever it might be, that exemption on the Social Security Medicare taxes only applies to their ministerial income and not to their other income. And it's the same for housing. That is correct. Yeah, same for the housing allowance as well. You, you said, uh, Ryan, you said two years. Is, it, is, that, is that what it is? They have to opt out within two years. Within, I thought it was five. Uh, uh, it's actually two years. Two years. Two years yeah. from, uh, and there's a little bit, in, in Southern Baptist life or in Baptist life, we kind of treat licensure and ordination we don't really draw a, a real clear distinction between the two, where there are certain denominations that ordination is a very clear demarcation point of when this person becomes a minister. Um, so in Baptist life, there's some churches that don't ordain, but they license. That licensure can actually still be that point at which they can make that decision, depending upon the practice of their particular group of churches or church that they're a part of. And there, there's a there's a monetary um, amount that's also attached to that. It's from the point that you earned four hundred dollars or, or more from from for a ministry income. Okay. About retirement, um, what you know, what 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 would you say to us just about you know issues of retirement contribution and you know looking toward that again? There's some element of this that ties to that issue of okay, this calling of God is different from a, just a profession or a career, but uh, what, what counsel would you give us on retirement contributions? Uh, on, on retirement, there's a, you know, you'll, you'll famously hear some pastors say, I don't believe in retirement, okay? And I, in a way, I agree with that statement. That doesn't mean that you don't plan on your compensation coming from someplace else other than a full-time job at a local church. So you could retire from getting your paycheck from the local church, and then therefore you need to get your paycheck off of what you have set aside for your retirement account, for lack of a better term, that you've planned ahead for. Uh, the biggest thing for the, the, the pastor is, uh, is making sure that they're starting early. In other words, it's something that a lot of times pastors will say, you know what, I don't have much money now. That's something I'm going to wait till later. Uh, we don't have time to go into graphs of compound interest and all those other kinds of things, but waiting is one of the worst decisions that somebody can make. Whether they're a pastor or a church or just a, a lay person in the pew that's got a secular job, waiting to start investing in retirement is not one of the things that you want to do. You want to take advantage of it as been, uh, at the beginning, especially if a church offers any kind of matching dollars. Uh, you want to be able to take advantage of those because that's free money. So in other words, if they say, if you contribute 5%, they'll match 5%. Well, you should really work hard to contribute that 5% because that's a free 5% that you're getting on top of it. Um, when it comes to, though, deciding how much to do it, uh, I actually had this question recently in my, my faith and money class is how much should I set aside for retirement? There's so many factors to that regarding number, you know, when you're starting, uh, your risk tolerance and investments, all different kinds of things. There's a general rule, and there, there's exceptions to it, obviously, since it's just a general rule, that uh, the 4% rule that's out there. And that's what you want to do is have enough money set aside that when you do retire from getting your paycheck from a regular source like a local church, that you want to provide your yearly income based upon 
a 4% draw off of what you've got saved. So 4% take off every year. And the reason why if you do that and you're able to live under those kinds of means is that uh, you would then be able to uh, know that that money is potentially going to last you a good 30 years before it runs out if you do that kind of 4% draw, depending upon how you're invested at the time. Uh, but that's one of the things that pastors kind of save as a, a thing on the side or don't participate in, uh, uh, but it's something that should actually be on the forefront of their mind the very moment they're starting ministry, uh, even if they're 22 years old starting. It's something they need to start then. And the, the recommended percentage continues to, for um, out of your, your paycheck continues to, to increase over time. Mm-hmm. We used to hear 5%. Then we heard 10%. Now we're actually hearing 15% is how much you should be setting aside each of each of your paychecks. That's how much should be going toward retirement to help prepare. And part of that has to do with market fluctuations. The confidence in the market is not where, where it used to be. And so um, they're helping, um, I say they, financial planners are helping individuals prepare for downturns in the market. So right now they're recommending 15%. Yeah. You, when you look at that number, it's just an observation. You know, You think about, the, the amount were counseled to, to, you know, for Social Security, 30%, you know, a third of a paycheck, and then you add 15 to it on retirement. You begin to see, you know, the, the struggles that are there sometimes in, in uh, ministry leaders, you know, families. So it's a very real issue. Mm-hmm. Um, another, you know, you've mentioned Guidestone and the resource for search committees. Uh, certainly some great resources and personnel to help ministers walk through that through through Guidestone as well as other institutions. It it is. And one of the great things about what Guidestone has done recently is it used to only be available to Southern Baptist. Uh, Those were the only people. Uh, Actually, Guidestone now from both a health insurance and even retirement account standpoints, if you're Presbyterian, Methodist, if you're like-minded in faith, they can actually now participate uh, in Guidestone. In addition, on the personal investment accounts, they don't have access to the same retirement accounts. They do could do some IRAs and things like that. Your spouse and even the person in the pew can now actually invest with Guidestone if they want to. We, know we want to kind of bring this to a close pretty quick. So just a couple of other issues that I'd like for each of you to, to, to comment on. Um, just personal uh, finances in the life of the minister, budgeting and, you know, just issues of managing that as a household, uh, debt, any, any, you know, any counsel you would give to us uh, in those areas there? Uh, You'll actually pay attention to what you count. What you don't count, rarely will you pay attention to. And that's even rooted in a sense of accountability, even between your own just faith walk before God and walking faithfully before Him. If you're asking yourself the question, am I faithful before God, one of the things that you're answering is, is, well, how is my time in the Word? How is my time sharing my faith? How is my time in my leadership with my family? So you're having to go back and account for those things and determine what they are. Well, it's the same thing with stewardship. If we're called to be managers of God's resources, and that's what stewardship means, uh, then we have to count somehow to know are we actually being faithful in these things. And that's where, that's where a budget comes, comes in. The, the hardest part is, is most people have no idea where to start from a budget perspective. They're, they have no idea what kind of numbers to face. One of the things that we've put in the resource guide that's going to be available on the website 
Uh, Crown actually has some good sample budgets that people can use that give very simple categories to follow and even some percentages to say if you're a family of X making this much money a year, this is generally the percent you should spend on housing, generally this percent you should spend on food, generally this uh, uh, percent you should spend on insurance. So it, it gives you kind of a, at least a helpful guide to look at some of those things. Yeah, re- regarding debt, um, I would say in most situations, debt is, is as bad, especially when you're talking about unsecured debt, like credit cards, where the interest rates are just astronomical, 25 30%, 30% on, on, on credit cards. So I would say when it comes to, to debt, be very, very, very wise in, in how you use that. Um, more, most people tend to have mortgages, and that would be a wiser use of, uh, of debt. But in a large number of uh, situations, debt um, can cause significant harm to not just the, the pastor, but any, any individual. I think uh, even Scripture is very clear on that. You know, if I was to ask anyone uh, if they wanted to be a slave to somebody else, uh, the answer they would say is no. Obviously, we want to be slaves to Christ in that sense, but to other humans, the answer would be no. And Proverbs 22.7 actually says that the rich rules over the poor and clearly says the borrower is the slave to the lender. Uh, your life becomes dominated by what it is that you owe them at that point in time. And it's something that you want to avoid as much as possible. The Bible never says no debt at all. Uh, now, the Bible says that you should owe no debt to no man, and that's the sense that you're not behind on what you owe them. It doesn't mean that you, because the Bible actually has provisions on loans and those kinds of things, from an, uh, even from a legal standpoint of the nation of Israel uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, however, it's definitely one of the things where there is great counsel against uh, it and going into it with eyes wide open as to what it is that you're, that you're doing. Guys, la- last question, and I want to preface this by, by telling our audience something. We, we have spent uh, tonight talking about uh, finances from the, the, the ministry leader's standpoint. Uh, we are going to follow this with a part two uh, after the first of the year uh, and do another one of these and talk about church finances. Uh, and, and so these, these two will go together. This one certainly will be available before then, but we want you to know there is going to be a, another part to this that is coming. Um, and so I, what, what I want you two guys to do just very quickly is kind of bait us for that, tease us a little bit. Get, tell us one thing, one issue, each of you, uh, just about... Uh, about us leading churches uh, to, you know, with regard to budgeting, taking care of staff that might be serving under us, you know, what, what is something you would throw out there that we'll come back and we'll chase down in more detail when we do part two of this? The thing I'm passionate about uh, talking to ministers in regards to church finances and budgets is that a lot of times you'll have a finance committee and the pastor will be an ex officio member of that committee. And sense of lack of interest or personalities on the committee either won't come or might come once, uh, gets whatever the budget sheet regarding to their particular department and fills it out and sends it in and kind of stays outside of the process. Uh, and this is not a thought that's original to me. I, I just It's one of those things where you forget where it is that it came from. Uh, but I loved what I, I read one point in time where somebody said that a church budget is just the ministry plan expressed in dollars and cents. 
And so what happens in a lot of situations is a church budget is developed uh, completely mutually exclusive from what it is that the church is trying to do from a ministry standpoint, where it is that the church is trying to head, the ministries that are wanting to start. And so without that, uh, that process coming together where those priorities are set and then the budget comes in line with accomplishing those things, that church is always going to be handicapped in being able to uh, complete the mission that they want to complete because, let's face it, it takes money to do those things. In, in, in addition to that, I would say determining the amount of, of revenue or the tithes and offerings based on hope and the danger that comes along with it. I've seen many, many, many churches that have made um, financial commitments through their budget based on a, an anticipated revenue or an anticipated tithes and offerings that was completely unrealistic. And so there's significant danger in, in uh, basing that, that portion of your budget on hope. A faith budget is not a biblical term. That's a great place for us to start because then we can come back and want to hear how you flesh that up, flesh that out, okay? <laughs> Guys, uh, you you have helped us so much. I, I can't tell you what an encouragement it is to me uh, just in hearing uh, you guys bring your expertise in this field together with your your walk with the Lord, your understanding of Scripture. You've shepherded us well in that. We appreciate it. We're going to look forward uh, two part two, and just hearing from you about you know how we lead our churches uh, to do this thing of being good stewards you know of what God has uh, given us to we uh, we also want to say thank you to you, those of you that are here with us live as well as those of you that are taking advantage of this resource uh, by video. Uh, we appreciate very much you you uh, uh, being a part of this uh, God bless you. <laughs>